When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, I love this, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Though Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come. <clears throat> you have come to see how you can see if our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. This is from uh, Genesis 45, 1 to 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants, and he cried out, Everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? For his brothers were, but his brothers were not able to answer him, for they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it is not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of the entire house, his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. This is, <clears throat> say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near to me, your, you, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and herds, all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of salmon, famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, 
that it's really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. In the Apostles' Creed, which we shared just a few moments ago, we profess that we believe in the communion of the saints. And every year on the first Sunday of November, on what we call All Saints Day, we celebrate that essential conviction of the faith, that beyond the veil, the boundary between this life and the next, there is a great cloud of witnesses surrounding and cheering us on all through our lives. Now, when we think of saints, people like the Apostle Paul, St. Francis, Billy Graham, or Mother Teresa come to mind. In other words, when we hear the term saint, we, we tend to think of those people perceived within the church as heroes of the faith, those people who were a cut above the rest in advancing the great commission of Christ. We look up to such folk as being unique in their endowment and exercise of the authority and power of the kingdom of God in this world. But the observance of All Saints Day is intended as a counterbalance to this well-intended but seriously flawed understanding of what a saint is. The word saint derives from the word sanctus, which we translate as the word holy. Biblically, those who are in Christ are holy, not because of what they do or accomplish, but rather because of what Jesus has done and accomplished for them. When the definition of saint is restricted only for those who are a little less than perfect, if you will, the spiritual overachievers, we give ourselves permission to be underachievers, to have lower expectations in terms of our authority and power in enacting God's kingdom here on earth. But if a saint is not someone who displays a higher degree of moral perfection, if a saint is someone who is set apart because of the faith that Jesus has placed in them, then all who seek to follow Jesus are saints. And we are each called then to exercise the faith, the authority and power that we have been given in Christ. As we continue our exploration this morning of the twin themes of covenant, relationship, and kingdom, responsibility, covenant and kingdom as this shared lens for reading and understanding the Bible, we see this truth, this truth that we celebrate on All Saints Day, lived out before the coming of Christ in the life of Joseph. As we saw last week, Joseph was no saint, according to our typical, typical definition of sainthood. At age 17, he used the favoritism he received from his earthly father, Jacob, as well as the dreams given to him by God, his heavenly father, as a means of lording over his brothers. His God-given vision for his future was one that we saw he had to grow into over time, facing many trials and tribulations. 
But we also saw that God blessed Joseph regardless of what he had to endure. Last Sunday, we learned that the promise of the covenant, the relationship, remains unchanged even when our vision of the kingdom, our responsibility, becomes limited. From the moment Joseph strode into Egypt, God's favor was with him, and he prospered again and again. Yes, Joseph suffered, but the Lord used the continued brokenness of Joseph's circumstances to bring breakthrough, a greater dependency and trust upon him. He learned the hard way, as we ended last week, that God was the center of his universe and not himself. It was only in surrendering his visions, in acknowledging God not just as his father, but also as the king of kings, that Joseph could exercise authority for the kingdom. And having done so, his dreams are finally coming true. And Joseph has become the second most powerful man in the world. But notice, but notice this morning back in chapter 41 as we get into 42 through 50 today, notice that even Pharaoh recognizes in this moment, this moment of transition, even Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph's newly revealed sainthood, his holiness, is not a product of something within or about Joseph, but rather is because of the God who has placed his faith in Joseph, the God who is at work within him. Pharaoh says, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Since God has made all this known to you, only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph demonstrates, again, that everyday people like you and I are saints when God places his faith in us. But the question now as we enter into chapter 42 through 50, the question that we're left with last week in the story is, what will come of Joseph's newly acquired authority and power? Joseph, after all, has had quite a journey to get here. He went from a cast-off brother to a deported alien to a foreign land, from a lowly slave to the leader of a household, from a falsely accused adulterer to a prisoner, to a jailkeeper, to a forgotten counselor, to now a great leader of a kingdom under a mighty pharaoh. How many times in that journey had Joseph been abandoned or forsaken? Time and time again, didn't Joseph start from the bottom and work his way up only to fall back down because of the jealousy, the lies, the absent-mindedness of others? Can we imagine? We've read this story. We've heard it so many times in our lives, but have we put ourselves in it? Can we imagine what it's like to be dragged from your homeland, to be dragged from your homeland through the desert? into a strange and unknown land, what that must have been like. Can we imagine what it's like to spend years in the darkness, the isolation of a prison cell? How do you begin to trust people again when you've tried to do right by them, but repeatedly have found yourself being let down by them when you need them the most? What will Joseph do now that his nightmare is over? Will he take advantage of his dreams? His elevated position after so many years, from 17 to age 30, of going without. What would you do? What do we do when we finally get some authority? When we finally get a little power? If we're honest, isn't the response that most of us have to reward ourselves first? Getting that promotion or that raise 
inheriting that position or that fortune, winning the lottery, the story tends to remain the same no matter who the person is. We look out for number one. We use our newly acquired authority and power to benefit ourselves first. Oh, we'll get around to taking care of others, we say, but first it's my turn. After all, we tell ourselves, we've worked hard. We've earned it. We went, out for, we went without for so long, you don't know what I had to get, do to get here. I deserve this. Beloved, this is the way the world works when it comes to authority and power. We witness it all the time on teams and clubs, in fraternal organizations. It's the rationale for hazing. This is what I had to go through, so this is what you have to go through. Now it's my turn. We view it in the aftermath of election campaigns, which we're on the verge of. It's repeatedly the justification for political favors, for lobbyists, for bills that are padded with pork. We owe our constituency. I gave you my vote. We might even propagate, not talking to anyone here, we might even propagate such logic in our homes in the raising of our children. When you get to be the parent, when you're an adult living on your own, you can make your own rules. You can do what you want to do. Authority and power understood in this way, the way of the world, can be addictive. And it can be corrupting. Power and authority become, in this way, associated with benefits without costs, actions without consequences, privileges without responsibilities. In fact, when this becomes our fundamental understanding of how the world works, we actually, many of us, will stop waiting to receive power and authority. We will do whatever we have to to take or seize power and authority. And this is not just the tendency of dictators. It is often our tendency as well. When we want power over a group, we will be tempted to ostracize anyone we have to in order to get that position. When we want power momentarily in the places where we have influence, we can be lured into stealing credit from others, faking our credentials, or even cheating on our timesheet in order to get it. This is because power and authority on the world's terms is yet another manifestation of sin, of our independence from God, our Father and our King. You know, in many ways, beloved, we, we, we tend to, in living this way, we picture life as a race up a ladder. We even talk about that, life in that way. We picture life as a race up a ladder in which we try to get to the top of the ladder to get what we want before someone else can get it. But when we view wealth or popularity or power or romance at the top of the ladder as a limited resource, then there's not enough for everyone else. And the problem with the ladder mentality is that only one person can fit on a rung of the ladder at a time. When someone else is on the ladder as well, if you've ever been on a ladder, it's a very uncomfortable feeling because we either have to let that person pass us and get what we want, leaving us very unhappy, or we have to let the other person down by climbing faster than him or her. Jesus, interestingly, didn't live according to this mentality. He didn't climb up a ladder. He got up on a cross. Jesus could have overpowered us with his authority, but instead he overwhelms us with his love. 
He overwhelms us by raising us up with him, not by keeping us down. And in so doing, he gives us his authority. He empowers us to overwhelm others with his love. And Joseph's story reflects this different kind of power and authority, a power and authority not of the world, but of the kingdom. While Joseph had once savored the thought of everyone bowing down to him, now he focuses on how he can save the lives of others, the Egyptians. Chapters 41 through 47 allow us to witness firsthand how Joseph exercises his newly given but long-promised power and authority. Again and again, we find him to be a thoroughgoing steward. In dealing with the widespread famine in the land, a famine that extends not just to Egypt but even to Canaan, Joseph does not seek any personal gain. He does not allow human ambition to motivate his actions in any way. He attempts to balance the interests of the nation and the people as he makes everyone pay for the grain that they use, but he does not take advantage of the people's helpless situation in order to exploit them. He tells everyone, if you read this in those chapters, he tells everyone that they can keep four-fifths of the produce of their land, giving only one-fifth to Pharaoh. That's less than we pay in taxes, by the way. And if you read, the people were not rebellious. The people were not full of complaints at his policies. The people were grateful. Beloved, Joseph models for us what that whatever power we have, Joseph models for us wherever we have authority over others, it's God-given. And it's not to be used for our own benefit or advantage. What we have, no matter how great or small, is intended to be exercised as a representation of the Lord's reign in this world. His kingdom. And in God's economy, authority is provided as a means to help and serve others. In other words, we are empowered to give rather than to receive. I don't think this story could be more timely for us than in the aftermath of what we are watching on the news in the Northeast. I don't know if, like you, you have friends and family there, but as we take in the devastation and chaos on the East Coast left in the wake of Superstorm Sandy, we could sure use some more Josephs right now, couldn't we? It's in moments like these, my brothers and sisters in Christ, moments like these that we watch on our television screens, we hear about on our radios, we see on the internet and in the newspaper. It's in moments like these that we have the honor. We have the opportunity to represent our Father's interests, to unleash the reality of the kingdom by exercising the authority and power that we have to meet the needs, to rebuild communities, to save lives. I don't know if you've just been watching what's been going on, but there are opportunities. And no opportunity is too small. A monetary donation, a community drive, a mobilization of resources at your place of work, maybe even taking some time off to go lend hand on the ground. But we have an opportunity to be saints like Joseph. Joseph is no one special. He is only special because of the faith that God has placed in him. And God places the same faith in us to exercise the authority and power he gives us for his kingdom. I leave that for us, and in the midst of the, my, my, my real encouragement for us to, to see this opportunity, I recognize that still, when we look at the bigger picture of Joseph's story, many of us can say, and maybe even in the midst of the crisis on the Northeast, I'm, I, I feel powerless 
What can I do? I feel that I lack any authority. And if perhaps the magnitude, the macro of what we see on the East Coast or the magnitude of a, of a story of a person who saves the world, Joseph, God working through Joseph, if that's too much for us, let us take notice then of the other significant, perhaps even more significant action taken by Joseph in this story. Just when Joseph was seemingly at the peak of his power, just when he had settled into his marriage and fatherhood, fatherhood, just as he had learned how to live in a strange land, his past came back to pay him a visit. Both the debilitating effects of the famine and ironically as well, Joseph's work in transforming Egypt into a resource for food led his brothers right to the doorstep of his life, seeking a handout. What a moment. What a moment because some of the bitterest betrayals, some of the deepest hurts that we suffer often come from our families. Such was the case in the story of Joseph, to be sure. Again, we hear this story all the time, but do we actually put ourselves in it? Can we imagine all of the anger the feelings of betrayal and abandonment, the gut-wrenching emotional damage of being forsaken that came to the surface for Joseph in that moment when years later he looked upon his brothers. The last time he saw them, the last time he saw them, he was being carted off as a slave while they scorned him, while they ripped his multicolored coat to shreds, while they counted the money they made at his expense. But now, history has reversed their roles, demoting the brothers to beggars and elevating Joseph to Pharaoh's right hand in Egypt. It's a tense scene. One that plays out in this story, in these chapters, over a series of weeks as Joseph conceals his identity, as we heard. But as we were to, if we were to continue on, we hear how he flirts with using his own power and authority for vengeance. But as we heard, when Joseph finally does reveal himself, when Joseph finally can stand it no more, when he finally reveals himself, those men who formerly hated and abused their brother become terrified, terrified to see him sitting in a position of rule over them. Do you remember the last thing they said as Joseph was carted away? Let's see what come becomes of his dreams now. Can you imagine in that moment when they realized who was before them, that one single sentence reverberating in their heads, let's see what becomes of his dreams now. Joseph literally holds their lives in his hands. He has the authority to have them thrown in prison. He has the power to have them executed. And beloved, again, that would be the way the world exercises power and authority we might even be tempted to call it justice. But Joseph, Joseph doesn't dwell on betrayal. He doesn't dwell on slavery. He doesn't dwell on lost love. He doesn't dwell on imprisonment or pain. Instead, Joseph displays the greatest authority and the most transformative power of the kingdom of God as Joseph extends forgiveness to his brothers. Though his brothers did him great damage, Joseph says, do you remember it? Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. How in the world, 
How in the world can Joseph tell them to not worry about the wrong they had did? Let's be clear. Joseph does not pretend that nothing wrong happened. The truth was that Joseph's brothers did send him away to end his life. He doesn't shy away from that truth. But Joseph, having yielded his life, allowing God to be at the center of his universe rather than himself, has gained a bigger perspective, a kingdom perspective. Joseph recognizes that though his brothers were terribly wrong in what they did to him, God had something greater that he was accomplishing. And so he says, for God sent me before you in order to save lives. And and just in case, if you're not familiar with this story, if you've forgotten, we might be tempted to think, because again, he cries so loud that all in Egypt hear him, even Pharaoh's household, that perhaps this was just an emotional reaction, something impulsive that just came to the surface. But it's not. Because if we were to skip ahead to chapter 50, later on in chapter 50, when his father, Jacob, dies, Joseph's brothers again become fearful. They obviously still haven't grasped a kingdom viewpoint of Joseph's authority and power because the minute their father dies, and I love this, they immediately send word to him in the words of their dead father, encouraging forgiveness of their prior actions. Dad's passed away, and before he died, he wanted you to know to forgive everything. Joseph's brothers are understandably concerned that Joseph maybe was just playing nice for dad foregoing his vengeance until Jacob had passed away. But once again, in chapter 50, as both covenant, relationship, and kingdom responsibility have come into alignment for Joseph, as he embraces his identity as a child of the Father, as he has surrendered his life before his king, Joseph does not take revenge. Joseph extends forgiveness. Joseph prophetically proclaims and reveals how God is reigning in the midst of a seemingly out-of-control and evil world. What you intended for evil, God has used for good. He's able to see, beloved, how order is being brought forth from chaos. He's able to see how reconciliation overcomes separation. He's able to see and he's able to express that the power of the kingdom, through the authority that God has given him, is about forgiveness. Don't be afraid, he says. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, oftentimes when you preach, the number one complaint that you get, besides how long the sermon is, (laughs) is, yeah, that's great, but how, how... How do I live that out? How is it practical? What what does it have to do with the life that I live? It just seems so far away, so remote. I hear that. But this morning, beloved, if we want to get practical, if we're one who's saying, you know, I hear all about God's kingdom and and God's power and authority, but I want to see it in my life. I want to see it in the world. I want to understand how how I can engage that. If If that's what we want, if we want to get practical, if we want to see the reality of God's reign unleashed in our lives and in our world, if that's truly the desire of our heart, then here it is. Here before us is to, uh, the opportunity for us to realize that the greatest expression, let me underscore that, the greatest expression of the authority and power of God's kingdom comes through our forgiveness of others. Put another way. If we profess 
to know God as our father, if we acknowledge together God as our king, and yet we find ourselves in our lives powerless. That's our, our, our experience. We're powerless. If we find ourselves frustrated, though we say God is our father and God is our king, if we see, look around and day to day our lives are in chaos, our lives seem out of control, let me suggest that the roadblock, the most significant roadblock that blocks our way is unforgiveness. I don't think I have to pull the room. I think I can say this with some certainty, that every single person that's here this morning, all of us have all been wronged at some point or another. We've been betrayed. We've been abandoned. We've been rejected. We've been lied to. We've been let down. And it's been by family or friends or coworkers or maybe even fellow church members. And if you've had that experience more than once in your life, it is hard. It is hard to let go of the pain of that kind of experience because it cuts so deep. It wounds us so profoundly. Some of us, in fact, even hold on to that pain. We hold on to it as a means of strength, as a form of protection, so that we won't get burned so easily next time. But beloved, if we lug that kind of weight around, it eventually turns into a heaviness that wears us down. It becomes the burden of resentment, burden of bitterness, the burden of distrust, the burden of lament. We might even be tempted to become proud of our suffering. No one has ever suffered like I have. You sense it with Joseph. Joseph in the midst of being on the precipice of taking vengeance. That moment when he finally reveals himself and cries out. What is in that cry? So many things, but certainly the, the release of forgiveness brings forth this cry that is heard throughout the land. Because nowhere, nowhere else in our emotions is it hardest to comprehend the magnitude of forgiveness when we have been persecuted wrongly or unjustly. But beloved, that cry that, that just desires to come forth from us as it did for Joseph, that, that unforgiveness that we're holding on to, it's so critical that we release it. It's so critical that we, we allow God to un, uncork it in us because that unforgiveness is about taking a position where we assume the Lord's role in judgment. It places us outside the kingdom as we are choosing to assert our own authority and power rather than surrendering to and receiving God's authority and power. We have to remember, this is why we get together every Sunday, it's the centerpiece of our worship, a cross and a sanctuary, a table that we come to. We have to remember that it's in having been forgiven that we have been adopted into the family, the covenant, the relationship with God as our Father. It is therefore through our forgiveness of each other that we exercise the responsibility, the kingdom, and represent our Father's reign on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, there are many things that we can do that God will call us to do to represent him. But if you want the simplest, the hardest, yet the most profound and impactful way that we engage the responsibility of the kingdom, that we represent our Father and our King, it is through the extension of forgiveness. We must always picture in our minds the two beams of the cross. One is vertical 
and the other is horizontal. Before we can be ready to become persons who offer horizontal forgiveness, before we can receive the power and authority of the kingdom in this way, to exercise forgiveness to our fellow man, we must first be a person who understands our vertical relationship with God. The covenant. So this morning, it's, it's one thing to talk about using our power to forgive. But it's another thing to actually do it. I want to invite you, and no one's going to check, to take out the sermon notes. There's a blank sheet of paper. Nothing on it except for the word sermon notes. And unless you've written something on it, it's still blank. I'm not going to comment on the laughter. <laughs> I forgive you. I'm just teasing. <laughs> As you look at that blank sheet of paper, where in our lives today are we still holding on to unforgiveness? My brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask that again. Where in our lives today are we still holding on to unforgiveness? Who, in your circle of influence, who in your network of relationships, needs to be forgiven. I want to pause and allow the Holy Spirit to bring a name or face to the surface. Something that you can write down on that piece of paper. Oh, silence is awkward. Even more so with a question like this. Who in our circle of influence, our network of relationships, needs to be forgiven? But as the Holy Spirit is working within us, and this is what we, what, what, how God works, if we open ourselves up, God will work. Beloved, as we tread near the threshold of the kingdom, of the authority and of the power that we've been given, as we, we are on the verge of considering forgiveness, let me be clear that as you're looking at that blank piece of paper, as you're allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you, that when we ask this question, when we ask, where is there still unforgiveness in your life? Who in your circle of influence or network of relationships is God calling you to forgive? We are not talking about forgiving some slight that occurred just the other day. Or a little tiff that we had with someone last week. While the work of Christ, the reach of the kingdom is without limit, Jesus didn't go to the cross to resolve our minor spats and petty squabbles. The authority and power of the kingdom is about deep healing. Mending what appears to be irreparable. Bringing value back to what seems worthless. Giving life where there only looks to be death. So I ask you again as you stare at that paper, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, where has God authorized and empowered you to bring forgiveness like that? The kind that brings reconciliation. The kind that brings redemption. The kind that brings resurrection in his kingdom. For some of us, it might be a friend that we haven't spoken to in ages. Perhaps intentionally. As the last word, the last scene between us left a wound that is never fully healed. That person, you know who they are. They crossed a line. They let us down. They weren't there when we needed them. 
what they did or didn't do still has us questioning how much we can trust or depend upon another person. For others of us, it might be someone still in our daily lives. We see them all the time. It might even be one of our children. It might even be a parent. It might even be our spouse. And yet between us, there, there's this unspoken, this unresolved hurt or betrayal. We, we've silently agreed to never talk about it. We've become very accomplished at pretending it's not there. But if we're honest, if we're honest, it often flares up passive-aggressively beneath the surface. It often flares up passively-aggressively beneath the surface of some other superficial argument we're having. What we're fighting about is not really what we're fighting about, but we just don't go there. That person that's coming to your mind right now, that name, I want to acknowledge that person that's coming to your mind right now, that name might, not, might, not, might no longer be among the living. So there's no way for you to talk with them. You're not able to actually transact forgiveness with them. Or maybe that person in this moment that you're thinking of, that name that you're writing down on the page, maybe that person doesn't even want to be forgiven. Maybe they don't even acknowledge the wrong. Maybe they never even choose to repent. They never even will agree with you that they need to be forgiven. Beloved, living out of the authority we have been given, unleashing the power of the kingdom is not about that. It's not about our strength, our perspective, or even our will. It's, about, it's not about having all the answers. It's about living in trust and dependence upon our Father and our King. We may have to reveal ourselves to the person whose forgiveness we need to give. They may come to us. We see both in Joseph's case. He reveals and then they come back to him. The key is not whether we can have that conversation. It's asked for. The key is forgiving that person before God. Releasing it. Exercising such authority and power that God wants to give us begins with extending forgiveness because that's where salvation, that's where transformation, that's where the reality of God's reign was first unveiled in our own lives. And it's hard. I know it's hard. Forgiveness, receiving it, extending it, can often be the one supreme and most difficult task in following Christ. It can be the most difficult task in following Christ. But when we recognize who God is, when we recognize how great our own forgiveness is, then we, like Joseph, can start to forgive. We can gain a bigger perspective. We can start to understand God a little better. How our Father works. How and what our King is promising to do. And we need that bigger perspective. We need that bigger perspective to represent God well. To bear the larger measure of responsibility to affect change in the lives of others that God intends for us to do. If you're powerless, if you're frustrated, if your life is in chaos and control, the work that God still seeks to do in your life is to set you free to forgive you. So that you can forgive others. You ever think about that? Do you ever think about the most fascinating thing about Jesus? The number one complaint that the religious leaders had about Jesus when, when his time was, who are you to have the authority to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And, and, and it's very controversial, but I don't know if we really allow the controversy to play out as it does in Scripture. Because if it's controversial for religious leaders then, it's still controversial for us now. Because Jesus says, 
that that authority that everyone can't believe he claims to forgive sins, he gives to us. That as those who follow Christ, we have the authority to forgive sins. What you bind on heaven, in heaven will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed on earth. God's intention is for us to have the responsibility and power of the kingdom to forgive. Are we exercising that power and that responsibility? Because what we see in Joseph's story, unleashing the power of the kingdom only begins with exercising our authority to forgive. Not only does Joseph forgive his brothers, you heard Luana read it, and in chapter 50 it's even more played out. Not only does Joseph forgive his brothers, he promises to provide for them, to protect them and their families, and he does it to the very end. We're just scratching the surface in this call to forgiveness. What God has for us beyond is so much more incredible. So much more profound, so much more mind-blowing. When we, like Joseph, live out of the, our own experience of God's grace, that our Father does indeed work all things together for good, we too will be able to let go of the past and to build for the future. And in so doing, we will enable others to be able to do the same. So I say to you this morning, beloved, on this All Saints Day, let us recognize that, re that representing God, our King, is not the responsibility of a select few, the spiritual overachiever, overachievers, if such people exist. It is the calling, representing our God, our King, our Father, is the calling for, of each one of us. The authority and power of the kingdom is reserved not just for some, but for all who are in Christ. And Joseph's story reveals the fullness of that responsibility, our responsibility as stewards, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. As we observe what Joseph does and how he does it, we witness a tangible and profound example of what it means to be a saint, of what it means to be holy as God is holy, of what it looks like to represent our Father in the world, our Father, our King's ability to change the world, to make all things new through his children, through us begins with our acceptance that his power to free is greater than the world's power to bind. And we unleash that authority, that power of the kingdom when we don't just say it, but we live by the faith that we have, that we have been given, that our Father can and will bring good out of the most evil of circumstances. The exercise of that kind of power, that kind of authority, of that kind of faith starts and ends with forgiveness. Is your page still blank? Is your page still blank? Is your page still blank? If it is, if it is, If it is, amen.